Howdy, y'all. You know that this week's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Cosmetic. Cosmetics CBD-infused skincare products help ease aches, pain, inflammation, and arthritis by using their proprietary topical CBD formulas. Cosmetics Hemp Pain Cream is the flagship product. Cosmetics Hemp Pain Cream is infused with their patented CBD formula, which naturally fights inflammation in achy muscles and joints. I rub it into an achy muscle and it starts working within seconds. Each bottle of Cosmetics Hemp Pain Cream is infused with 400 milligrams of their proprietary CBD solution. You can get 20% off of your entire order by going to Cosmetics Online Store and using the promo code for this show, SOS20. That's SOS20. Be kind to your skin and go to Cosmedicated.com. That's C-A-U-S-E, Medicated.com. Sweet. Do it. Podcast time. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. My name is Ben Fields. This is my podcast. I'm glad you're here. I've missed you. Feels like it's been a minute. It hasn't. It's been a week. I do this show every uh, every Monday. So here we are together. I have John Phillips on the show today. So John Phillips takes old metal and he forges it down and creates some of the coolest knives you have ever seen in your entire life. They're absolute works of art. If you've seen kitchen knives out there that look like they have uh, like a topographical pattern on them, they're likely his his knife. He can't make them fast enough because famous chefs, famous actors, Sturgill Simpson <laughs> are all buying his knives from him faster than he can make them. So a lot of them are commissioned. But it's mind-blowing to hear how he does it and uh, how his knowledge of metallurgy and forging and crafting uh, of these knives made him a, uh, a champion on the TV show forged in fire on uh, history channel. And, uh, just wait till you hear what they did to one of his knives to see how strong it was. It's an outrageous story. It was a moment that really won that TV show for him. Uh, but check his stuff out on Instagram at Phillips forged. It's absolutely beautiful and amazing. So let's, uh, let's get to it. Here he is. My man, John Phillips. We're doing the pop I feel like I can reconnect with him in a way. Yeah, reconnect from with the distance. scene a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. When was that? When did you put the head down and start? Um, probably about four or five years ago. Is that when you started making knives? That's when I really focused in on it. What? What? what how did it start? Um, man, it started when I was actually working in a place doing architectural metalwork. So I was doing like stair railings and sculptures. Do you work for Preston? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So it started gotcha. with him and, you know, I was into the work we were doing, but I wasn't really into it. And I started just playing around and I was just curious. I just wanted to figure out how to make a knife. And I had been doing metal work for like 20 years before I ever tried making a knife. I had never considered like all the metallurgy, you know, all the stuff that's going on inside the metal I'd never considered the history behind it. You know, mm. it, and I never thought about like the knife, the edge tool being man's oldest tool, you yeah. know? And so I started just like hammering metal out and figuring out like, oh, this one gets hard. This one doesn't get hard. And then like, how do you turn it into an edge? 
And there was all this stuff that was like hidden inside the metal that I had never realized. So Preston was like, why don't you just go make knives? Because I wasn't really happy at, at the job there. Really? And I was like, you know what? I, I think I will. Yeah. It's Preston Faribault. Ironwood? Is that yeah, what it's called? Yeah. Aspire is his his business. And then Ironwood is like the larger gotcha. larger thing. How long were you there? Uh, I was with Preston for a few years, yeah. maybe two years. I've heard years. he's a really good teacher. He is, yeah. He's really good at um, kind of teaching through the relationship that you have with the metal hmm. in that it's something that you can't really make a mistake at that's not something you can fix. Hmm. So, and he kind of uses that as like an allegory for life. <laughs> where, you know, no matter how bad you fuck up, you can always go back and you can weld it, you can bend it, you can make things shorter, make things longer. Like, whatever you got to do, you can do with metal. <laughs> there's uh, there's some leeway there. Yeah. And there's nothing, you, you, can, you can always command Z, you can always undo it. Exactly. I mean, it's not always easy. Yeah. But. But it can be done. It can be done. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good, uh, I don't know pretty good way to live live your life i feel like yeah and a pretty absolutely. good way to parallel it to, absolutely. to metal yeah and you know kind of when i learned that from him everything kind of started making sense mm. and it was like all right well this is something that i need to figure out how to master or at least you know like really figure it out did you make any knives when you were there yeah that's when you i did. started so i was starting out just kind of making knives on the side after i got off work he would let me use the power hammer in the forge and uh then they would have like the first Friday sales and I would, you know, I'd, I'd take old files and like hammer out old files and turn those into knives. And, you know, they wouldn't, it'd just be like a raw piece of metal with the file texture as the handle, just super raw. And, um, you know, people were buying those for 20 bucks, you know, and I I was selling them. I was like, holy shit, (laughs) I'm making money. Well, what about that, that thing that you said about like the, the edge tool being, you know, being there from the beginning. Like yeah. It's as important as the wheel, right? Yeah, exactly. Go out in the woods by yourself yeah. and try to survive and you'll realize that an edge tool like a you know, knife exactly. is going to be your best friend. Yeah. I mean, you know, you need it to make a fire. You need it to make a shelter. Mm-hmm. You need it to prepare food. Uh, you need it to defend yourself sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's always been there. And it's there's been more edge tools made than any other tool ever, you know. Yeah. And... But yet there's still designs that can be made. There's still ideas that can be pushed. So, you know, it still has this artistic merit just as well as this functional merit. Yeah. So do you, do you find yourself getting excited about finding new ways to explore this super old medium? Yeah, absolutely. Like constantly. And that's why I've been able to put my head down and work on it. I mean, I've had all kinds of jobs. I've built cabinets. Uh, I did fine woodworking. I've done stonework. I've done concrete work. I've done renovations. Like, you know, every job I've worked in kitchens, every job I've had it. And nothing's really been able to, like, hold my attention for that long. And until I discovered knives. And then all of a sudden I was like, man, there's history, there's design, there's function. You know, there's just all these different elements. And I can mix in all the different materials. You know, I can work with different bones, different stones, like anything really. So with metallurgy, like what, what metals are you working with? It really depends. So, uh, I work with, uh, high carbon tool steels. 
basically. That's okay. That's the gist of it. But you know, I work with stainless steels. I work with uh, carbon steels. Work, you know, all different types. Okay. And and they all react differently. They all mm-hmm. like each other differently. They yeah. all they all join together or don't. Yeah, a lot of a lot of metals like will repel against each other. Mm. So like on this piece here, uh, this metal and this metal hate each other. Okay. They don't want to stick. So that's why there's that silver line in the middle. Yeah, it's almost like a seam. Yeah, so that silver line is pure nickel, okay. which is basically like a neutral metal which kind of acts as a glue between this outer layer of wrought iron and this inner layer of high carbon steel. Okay. Did you add that or uh, did it create yeah. itself? No, I added that. Okay. So everything is super intentional. Okay. Even no matter how random things look, there's still an intention into the the process. Yeah. So th- they're very useful tools. They're absolutely beautiful. There's obviously um, a point where you said – like these are going to be useful tools, but the, the the part of them being beautiful works of art is what's going to, you know, make people want to buy them. Yeah. Um. What? When did when did it go from just from making a tool to to making a kind of a work? I mean, they're works of art when I look at them right Thanks. here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I studied fine art at okay. school. I came. I moved here first to go to UT. Okay. And I always knew that I wanted to be an artist, but I never knew what that meant. Mm. Um. And I always knew that uh, I really had a thing for the three dimensions. So I like things that you can hold in your hand, things that are tangible. Yeah. You know, I was okay at drawing and painting and whatever, but, you know, I really have like the connection of working with my hands. Gotcha. And so, uh, I don't know, just as soon as I started playing with it and making these things that, you know, I had never seen before, even though... You know, I, there was a whole world of knife making that I had no clue existed when I started making knives. And so, you know, it was really before Instagram and before, you know, there was all this stuff on the Internet that you can find really easily now. Um, I just knew that it was out there, but not really. So, I don't know, just from, from the get-go, basically, you know, I, I wanted to make a knife that had the same appeal as, like, a hand-thrown mug. Ah, so, you know, I was looking around, looking for a good knife. I wanted to buy a nice chef's knife, and I started shopping around. It's like everything is just made in a factory. Hmm. They all look the same. They're all super clean and, like, just very manufactured looking. And I was like, why isn't there the equivalent of, like, a hand-thrown mug but in a knife? Well, I'm sure that doing what you do at a production scale is probably pretty difficult. Yeah, yeah. Is that it is. why it's not of a? Is that why you couldn't find that? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you know, through refining my process, now I'm trying to get closer to that point mm. where I can figure out how to create something at a semi-production scale. Gotcha, and actually keep up with demand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because you're pretty, pretty sold out, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm like working on orders from 2019 still. Really. So, and you're working as hard as you can, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 40, 60, 80, 100 hours a week. Really? Yeah. I'm, the past couple of weeks, I've put in like 18-hour days, like day after day for like 10 days straight. Is it getting old? Uh, Is no. it work yet? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely work. But when I'm done with it, it's like I have such a disconnect from it that I'm like, holy shit, I made that. Like, really? It doesn't even seem real anymore. Yeah. Even though, you know, I imagined it and then I was there for every step of the process. When it's done with, I'm just like, well, that's pretty cool. It all came together just like 
just like I imagined. Really? So, so are they your babies, like each one of them, or is it just you're done and you're like, yeah, I blacked out for a second. I don't know. How this yeah, happened. pretty much. Like when I'm done, I'm kind of done. Really? And it, you know, I really can't appreciate things until I have some time and separation from them, and then I can come back and be like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. What happens when you're done right. with a knife? Is it like, all right, that's good. I'll put it over here and and fulfill the order, or you stare at it for a little bit, or, or what's no, it? man, I pretty much put them in a box and ship them off. Really? Yeah. There's this is the most stuff I've had on hand in like six months yeah. to a year. We've well, got you brought all kinds of stuff, man. That sword is obviously the the centerpiece. That's absolutely crazy. That looks like a lot of the stuff that I've seen uh, on your on your Instagram and on your website. Yeah, uh, it's almost like a, a it's to, it's a topographic feel it looks yeah. like a topo map yeah and um you were saying uh before we started that it's a few different kinds of metal kind of joining together to make that to make that uh that pattern um which it looks like you drew it in there with a toothpick when it was mm-hmm. like you know, you know yeah. like it was molten steel and you just kind of it's you know, pretty drew much it. like that yeah. is that what it's like yeah so while the steel is hot uh we create topography using different dyes on my hydraulic press so i have okay. this big machine that i built that basically has eighty four thousand pounds of pressure and you can slide different dyes into it so depending on how you want to manipulate the steel you pop a die in there and yeah and it squishes it and creates that topography gotcha explain then, what a die is so a die is just, um, it's a tool, a patterning tool, hmm. essentially. So it just, I have two dies that go into the mouth of this press. Mm-hmm. There's an upper die and a lower die. And then you put your work, you know, you get the metal hot. I get it up to about 2000 degrees and then come down, you hit the pedal and the hydraulic press comes down with 84,000 pounds of pressure while it stills at 2000 degrees and it just squishes it however the die tells it to. So is the pattern in the die? Is it carved out in the mm-hmm. die? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I use different. So it's almost methods. like letterpress or, or some, something yeah. like that. Yeah. A lot like it. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm deforming those layers. So I have to start off with like this, you know, a big chunk. How much does that weigh? This is probably like 20 pounds. And it's steel? Yep. And it's steel. And, How many kinds of steel? Uh, this is just two different types. Okay. But I'll I'll do two to four different types of steel depending on what type of pattern I want to get. Okay. What are the best kinds of steel for, for making making your knives? Um high carbon steel is the main the main ingredient. So you need to have a steel that is going to harden. If there's not a lot of carbon in the steel, then it's not gonna harden. Mm. So um this one is made out of 1084 and 15 and 20. This one is uh, Swedish super steel that started out as a powder. And it's like a DS93X or something like that. You know, all these crazy numbers and crazy letters, numbers that, and letters that don't mean anything to anybody yeah. except for the metallurgists, yeah. basically. And the numbers are all code that, you know, once you know what that code is, you can kind of be like, oh yeah, that's a high chromium, high nickel steel mm. or whatever. So what are the, dif- the different properties? Um, so high carbon is one of them. High carbon is so one that's of them. So you said that's a hard one? Yeah. So uh, the carbon, you know, that you have a certain amount of carbon that creates the hardness of the blade basically. Okay. Uh, and then you have different uh, abrasion resistance. So there's toughness of steel. Uh, then there are certain things you can add to the steel to make it repel um, rust mm. and 
you know, so there's like stainless steels and carbon steels, which basically the difference there is just one has chrome and or high nickel content. Is that what stainless steel is? Is mm-hmm. High chrome content? High chrome or um, a couple other things I can't think of. Why do they call it stainless steel? Because it doesn't rust. Okay. So that's that's the main thing. Or it's resistant to rusting. Gotcha. It doesn't like oxidization. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so the stainless steel requires a whole different process of heat treatment. So that's what a lot of it comes down to also. like What's heat treatment? So heat treatment is how you get the hardness of the steel. So like a carbon steel, basically you get it up to its target temperature. You get up to where all the molecules are moving. And it's in a solution state called austenite. And then you dunk it in oil real quick. While oil? Yep. Is that like quench it? Yep. Or? yep. Okay. It's a special quench oil. Uh, but sometimes you can use vegetable oil. You know, it just depends on what type of metal. And basically you're trying to cool down that solution of steel while it's in this certain molecular organization. Mm. Where basically the carbon molecules are all in the corners versus if you don't quench it, all those carbon molecules move to the faces. And, and so, the corners would be the blade or the, the edge? The corners of the molecules. So it gets real... Freaking me out right now. It gets really, <laughs> really deep. Gotcha. Uh, stuff that you can't even see, but you can see it when you're working with it, and you can see it as it's cooling. You can watch the metal move through these different states. So like the Japanese bladesmiths, they would say that's like the spirit of the steel because mm. you can actually watch it move through these different solution states as it's cooling down. And it's like a ghost basically moving around inside of the metal. It's really cool. It's nuts, man. Yeah. So what are some of these other ones you've Uh, got here? There's like a cleaver and there's a few other, I mean, it's pretty much every blade you could ask for. There's a serrated one in there too. This is a new one. I don't do many bread knives, but this is a bread knife and this is made of the same steel as the sword there. Okay. Do they end up having the same kind of patterns because the die is the mm-hmm. same? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you'll use a die a couple of different times. Yeah. So do you, do you put it in the die, get it to a certain shape and then make the serrated parts mm-hmm. of it after, after that? Yeah. Wow. And it doesn't like, it, once you start shaping it, it doesn't uh, mess with the integrity of the pattern that's on there. No, it actually, you kind of plan on, you plan on these things ahead of time. Mm. So, you know, the, the pattern is kind of developed and then you know how, well, in theory, I like to think about how it's going to develop as, you know, you, you grind the edge profile in. Because basically, a lot of them are just kind of forged out into these blocky shapes where it's like pretty knife-ish looking. But then I've got to go back on a grinding machine and like refine the shape and kind of cut everything in. And then you start grinding those bevels on Mm. you know, after it's been hardened, after the heat treatment. How do you make a serrated serrated blade like that? Um, so I have this machine called a KMG grinder, and I have two of them. And basically KMG just means knife-making grinder. Okay. And they run on these 72-inch belts. And wow. Six feet? Yep. So it's a six-foot belt. In circumference? And then, mm-hmm, or in in yeah. circumference. Yeah, in, yeah or, surface yeah. area or yep. whatever. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, I have different arms. So I build a lot of these different arms that go onto it. So depending on how you want to grind, how you want to contact the the surface, mm-hmm. you put these different arms on. So like the serrated knife here, I use a, a wheel that's a sev- uh, seven eighths inch diameter wheel. Okay. So it's basically like a, a skateboard yeah. bearing. And you put them in one by one? Yep. And I just mark it all out and just very carefully cut each one in. And then sharpen the the tips mm-hmm. of those? Yeah. So actually what I do is I sharpen the whole blade just like a regular blade. So it started off, you know, just like this. Okay. And then I went back in 
and mark each one. You mark each space and then just very meticulously just grind each one out and then go back in and sharpen in between each one. Gotcha. And so you've already developed this this edge, so it's yeah. already sharp on the point. Now it's just a matter of making it sharp in between each point. Amazing. So how did people start to notice your work? I mean, it's obvious, it's beautiful stuff, but how did how did it get into the mainstream? Really uh, through the internet yeah. and uh, the TV show, the TV show. So yeah. and also before that, um, chance encounter with Chef Sean Brock. Yeah. So Sean was this Nashville chef, and everybody was asking me if I knew him, and I was like, hell no, he's a famous chef. Yeah. And then I was doing a craft show. And he just happened to walk by and I yelled his name from across the room and he came over and looked at all my stuff and thought it was super cool. And we went out for coffee the next day and talked about life and he was just super into what I was trying to do. And so he posted a thing up on his Instagram and then like pretty much the next day, just my phone was blowing up. My email box inbox was just packed. I had like, 3,000 new followers on Instagram. All of a sudden, like, everybody wanted something. Really? And then, then I went on and did the Forge and Fire show. Yeah, Forge in the Fire. Mm-hmm. Forge in, in Fire. In Fire, yeah. yeah. And you said uh, History Channel? Or, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, on the History okay. Channel. But but Sean Brock, I, I, I know his name because I, I've eaten at some of his restaurants in, like, Charleston, I think, mm-hmm. and and other places. It's yeah. kind of an interesting thing, the, the kind of famous chef thing yeah. that came around the emerald yeah. kind of era yeah and people started like you know going to the going to these guys restaurants not because mm-hmm. it was a good restaurant but because they knew who the chef was yeah and it, is he one of those guys who kind of got in on the tail end of that chef yeah craze? totally he's like he's a very inspirational dude though like really? he he's overcome a lot of stuff uh overcome like addiction and yeah. uh some rare diseases wow so he has a forgot what it is he's got like a rare disease that almost killed him wow and that and drink heavy drinking yeah a lot of gratitude in that so, guy yeah, yeah yeah lots and so you know he really like turned his life around and mm. became an inspiration to a lot of people who were working in the industry or <laughs> just wanted to have roots like he was just a country boy from west virginia mm. and he just like loved food and he loved what food meant and so, you know, the whole heritage behind it. So he started really getting into like bringing back these kind of lost foods, these yeah, heritage heir- heirloom stuff. kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah, totally. So yeah. he brought back like these heirloom, this heirloom corn that was like pretty yeah. much out of production. It's kind of crazy. All these seeds and mm-hmm. all these things that have been, you know, kind of disappeared from the mainstream for a while that yeah. these like Geechee Boy in Charleston yeah, is one yeah. of them that like keeps those things yeah. alive, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So Sean had a lot to do with that. Really? Yeah, and and bringing Gucci Boy like to all of his restaurants. Yeah. Um, that and there's also a Carolina rice that he really helped. He started like working with these farmers and making sure that they could supply it, and you know, guaranteeing that they would sell it if they grew it, and you know, it just kind of built from there. That's so cool. But, yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of his history, but also regional history. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, uh, so he comes along and starts using your knives and buying, mm-hmm. buying your knives or, and using yeah. them in the kitchen at his restaurants and all yeah, that. Yeah, that, and, uh, he put them in his cookbook. So he, uh-huh. he came out with this new cookbook and, and it's just like, you open it up and my knife is across the centerfold of the book. <laughs> it's beautiful. It makes perfect and, uh, sense. Why you know, you... and he, he didn't tell me that was going to happen. I really? was just, I was at Whole Foods and I was like, oh, look, Sean's new book. 
I open it up. I'm like, holy shit, it's my yeah, knife. Do you have a freak out moment? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I had to tell the cashier at the grocery store, like, <laughs> it's my knife. That's me. And she's like, all right, cool. Sure, exactly. <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> yeah. So that was a, a, a bit of a turning point, I guess, yeah. is when, when he started using your stuff. Did other chefs yeah. start to kind of get on or other restaurants? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there was a chat, uh, restaurant in Chattanooga that called me up and they were like, yeah, we want like all of our steak knives be made by you. Okay. Then, so these are so, on the table at the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So did you see, um, did, did you see people liking your knives um, for, from the aesthetic or from the functionality or a bit of both? It was both. It was a story, you know? So like people were like, holy crap, some guy in his garage made these. Yeah. Like, All right. Isn't that amazing? Like, you know, people had, hadn't seen these things that look like a person made them. Right. And so, you know, it's just most of the time people use these knives and, you know, it's just like whatever. It's just a knife. And I was making these things that people could have a human connection with. Hmm. And so that's what, you know, they were really interested in. Yeah. Do you try to tell stories with the the blade or the handle or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I used to tell more stories with it and the materials I use. So I started out focusing more on working with reclaimed materials. Hmm. So I would use old sawmill blades or old files or old farrier's rasps, you know, just... And just grind them? Uh, I would still forge them out. Okay. So I'd flatten them out and, you know, forge them out into knifeish shapes. Yeah. And then grind them the rest of the way. So what does forging take? What does forging mean? Forging means heating the metal up to a state of plasticity mm. and then manipulating, you know, using those those characteristics of plasticity and manipulating the steel to push it where you want it to push. Yeah. Moving it where it needs to move. But it's different than molting steel down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm not taking it all the way down to a liquid state. I'm bringing it to a point of uh, diffusion. So I'm bringing it up to the point just before it starts to break down. Yeah. And then right at that point, then working it. Yeah. When it's most vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just more lifeless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, some so some of the stories that, that you would start to, to try to tell, would you do that with different, I'll, I'll call them steel recipes or yeah. was it in the handle yeah. of what you would make? Well, the- so like this knife is a perfect example okay. of, uh, the That's outer the one layer. with the, with the lead seam in it or the what uh, kind of seam? nickel nickel seam. Yeah. Sorry. So this outer layer is made from, uh, wrought iron from the 1830s. Wow. So this, this outer layer is a process of metal that they stopped making in 1830. <laughs> so it's really freaking old. Where do you find it? It finds me, you know, <laughs> at this point I get calls from people, emails really? from people. Then they're just like, Hey, we've got all this old metal. My, I went to Maryville last week and this lady was like, yeah, my dad was, you know, a farmer in the great depression and he saved everything and he's gone now, but we've still got like all these buckets full of metal. Do you want to come over and see what we've got? So I drive out to Maryville and going through these people's basement, just, you know, <laughs> finding all kinds of old metal and seeing what I can work with. So you know that that kind stopped, was stopped. uh, They stopped making it in 1830? Yeah. Yeah. So that's when steel production changed from the Bessemer system to the the next system of steel. Well, steel was a huge commodity in American history. Yeah. Right? Did it change a lot uh, over time? Yeah. Yeah, it did. You know, through, you know, you had... The 1830s, the way they made metal, and then you had the way that they made it from like 1830 until like 1910. Okay. And then, you know, then we had the Great Depression hit, 
Then we had World War One. We had World War Two, where it, you know still became a ration. Then mm. we had the post-war era where, you know, there was this recovery, but we started getting into recycling steel, where then they started, you know, uh, exploring the science more, figuring out how they can recycle it just to kind of get it back to usable state. Uh, and then, you know, the 60s and 70s, where the, then they started focusing more on the space race and figuring out, like, what do we need to ma- add to the metal to, you know, create titanium or you know, all these other crazy types. And then there was a certain point where uh, the Damascus steel, was, this process was actually lost for like thousands of years. What's Damascus steel? So the Damascus is this layered steel. So okay. all this stuff with the crazy psychedelic patterns, Yeah, uh, it's frequently called Damascus or forge-welded forge steel. Okay. So um, it was developed in the Middle East like a couple thousand years ago. And then... It was basically just lost. Like the blacksmiths were working in their caves with their back turned mm. and they never taught anybody anything because, you know, the, they were creating the weapons and they were kind of like the gatekeepers. And so it was all kept super secret. Mm. And so, you know, that was like the ancient metallurgy and only a few wow. guys knew how to do this stuff and they didn't really pass it down. So they were creating this steel. Mm-hmm. In Dam- Where's Damascus? Jordan, Georgia? Uh, I think or- so. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so it comes from the city, this town, yeah, this, yeah. this recipe that they're yep. building and putting together and creating. Yeah, they think it actually came from this one cave. Wow, where there's like all the right, all the right ingredients, basically, that they were just digging this, <laughs> digging the sand out, and the sand had you know all the right stuff that they needed to heat up and smash down into these bars of steel, and they were able to get these super. Uh, sharp blades basically because of the carbides that existed in this the iron and in the minerals that were there hey sam i think that uh tv speaker's on is it on the remote control can you hear it coming from the tv no, no you can't okay i was hearing it for some reason okay sorry a little echo a little i heard a little i heard echo. a little bit did you just I wonder like where it's the from. smallest amount i know it's weird so they're taking this stuff from, from this cave in Damascus and it just happens to be the best. <laughs> they, they happened yeah. upon the, the, yeah. the best of the best pretty much for their time. You know, the, you had it, you had it going on in other places. The Vikings also had their own thing going on where they were like, they were taking, uh, they were taking, making their metal, but then say you're a great warrior and you kill a polar bear. Yeah. They would burn the polar bear into the steel and like, imbue it with the spirit of the polar bear. But actually what they were doing is they were adding large amounts of carbon Uh, to the steel. Yeah. And so they had their whole thing going on. Then you had the Japanese who had these like black sand beaches Mm. and they were going and like digging up, you know, buckets full of sand and then carrying it up a mountain and making their own steel. So, you know, you had different cultures kind of figuring it out in their own ways not communicating with each other. No, they were they were lear- taking it from the land and, yeah. and figuring out how to make this thing that they kind of had an idea that they needed. Yeah, exactly. How do you make steel? Um, you get hot minerals. You get minerals or uh, or <laughs> yeah, and basically you put it in a cup, crucible mm-hmm. is what it's called, and you seal that crucible up with mud, and you get it really 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 hot, and you cook it until everything burns out except for those essential minerals. Mm. 
And so then you're just left with this like honk of ore, and that's your billet that you start with. And then you just start pounding it and you just keep on beating it, keep on beating it. And as you do that, you condense those minerals, you force all the air out, you force all the impurities out of it, and then eventually you're left with metal. So how did, how did people figure out how to start doing this on a production scale and make steel such a huge commodity to where it's in? I mean, you, you made a knife that, that's six inches long right here that's absolutely beautiful and a work of art. But there is a billion times that much steel in a lot of buildings, mm-hmm. you know, around. So yeah. it became at some point this huge commodity yeah. that, uh, it, that, that built, you know, the greatest buildings in the world. It, it became a, a huge thing in the, obviously in the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s for trade. I mean, yeah. it's right there with oil yeah. as far as, yeah. as being commodity that's important to human existence. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea how, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a feat. For sure, because there's so much process that goes into it, so many resources. It's hard scrabble. It's a it's yeah. a hard scrabble effort. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, it's it's um, back to the. I, I want to ask again about the story of of that knife right there because back to this one. Yeah, because I, I cut you off when you were when you were talking about it because I asked you about the the storytelling part of it yeah. because there's also a handle involved yeah. in that that's not steel. Yeah. So the handle is. Um, this is a material called mokumegane, which is another metal that I make, which basically is layering precious metals. So this is nickel, silver, and copper that are all fused together. And uh, that's a Japanese process that I was taught by the woman who brought it to the United States from Japan. And she's like 90 years old. And What's that, it called again? Mokumegane. And uh, it's also on the sword right here. Yeah. So, on the hilt of the sword or mm-hmm. above it? It's called the habaki. The habaki is the part mm-hmm. above, that connects the hilt to the blade? On the Japanese style swords, yeah. Okay. On this piece, it's called a bolster. Okay. So it just depends on... So so is that is that piece of steel, uh, it goes into the handle and the bolster wraps around and, mm-hmm. and keeps it in there tight? Yeah. So it's yeah. a very important piece. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to have that piece, but it, it adds a lot of strength and style to it. Yeah. And then this part of the handle is um, black palm wood. So where do you get that? I got a guy. (laughs) You know, you got to have a guy. Uh, No, actually, I got this from Jeffrey's Woodworks out in Seymour. Okay. So they're my my favorite wood shop. If you ever need any lumber, they're the they're the ones to go to. And then the bottom of it is the bottom. This is a um, some sort of horn. I believe it's a musk ox horn. Wow get that from jeffrey too so, no <laughs> i think i got that from the big knife show in atlanta okay and then how do you get all is that a lathe that you get it all put together no i hand shape it all wow man so so you know i make all the pieces individually <laughs> and then through either like just sanding and filing yeah i just just shape everything it's so amazing and then the wood i put through a special stabilization process also where i basically uh, i bake the wood and remove all the moisture from it so mm. it's like totally dry. And then it goes into a vacuum chamber in this special resin and it suck all the air out of it for weeks. Mm. And what that does, it forces this resin into the pores of the wood. So, so you take the moisture out mm-hmm. and then you put the resin on it. And it, well, and I submerge the wood into the resin. And then it, it vacuums itself and it in. it vacuums. It sucks in all the pores. To fill into the pores that were in the pores, yep. full of moisture before. Yeah, okay. or air. Yeah. And then... After it's been in there for a few weeks, all that resin sucked into it. Then it's wrapped in aluminum foil and put in a kiln. 
And at 200 degrees, this resin catalyzes and it expands in those pores. Oh, man. And so it essentially like glues the wood together from the inside. Gotcha. So that moisture can't get into it, whatever. So none of these have any finish on them at all. Really? Yeah. Even the shiny one right there yep. that you were just holding up. Yep. Is that all from the resin? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's from the resin and then sanding it up to like 5,000 grit. See, that's what's 5,000 grit yeah. sandpaper? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, you're like sanding with with notebook paper, basically. Yeah. that, that You're blowing my mind telling me that there's no finish on that. Yeah. It looks like, I mean, it's as shiny as polyurethane, some of them. And then yeah. some of them, even the duller finishes like that are, are just are, are fascinating. And I, it does not look like raw wood. It, it looks like he sanded it with 5,000 grit sandpaper. Yeah. yeah, so depending on how you know, how shiny I want to make it. Yeah. You know, you can take it up as high as you want and then buff it, you know, just buffing wheels and sanding rouge. Gotcha. So the different waxes that have a small amount of grit. Okay. In them, basically. So how many different, whoops. So how many different, um, like styles of blades or swords or, <laughs> I mean, I know you don't make a lot of swords, but how many different styles of, of knives do you make? It's really unlimited. Really? I mean, yeah, I make, uh, you know, I have like four to six, like kind of production styles that mm-hmm. I do, that I do a lot of, but then within that, it's pretty much unlimited. Gotcha. Well, you say production, but they're still all handmade, right? Yeah. God, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. But, you know, I have to kind of have some baselines that people understand. Yeah. So, you know, I have like a common chef's knife and, you know, people are like, oh yeah, I like your chef's knife. And really? there, there's things about it that they like, you know? They, you know, they expect it to be a certain depth of the hill. They expect for the blade to be shaped in a certain way, et cetera. But otherwise, you know, it's pretty much wide open. Yeah. Have you had any collabs with uh, with chefs that have said, hey, I, yeah, I love this knife. I wish it was a little shorter right here or anything yeah, like that? I mean, not yes and no. Okay. You know, I have, I've had definitely some chefs that, are, you know, they, they show me like their favorite knife and they're like, but, you know, I would love it if it were like a little more like this and a little less mm. like that. And then, you know, I'll try to figure out what they mean. Yeah. And then I'll send them a knife and then they might send it back to me and be like, ah, I want a little more of this, a little less of that. Yeah. And so, you know, there is kind of a dance back and forth to like get them exactly what they want. Yeah. Do, who do you make your knives for? Do you think in your head when you're making it? Uh, Any Anybody or I mean, is it are you making it for the best chef in the world? Or are you making it for somebody who wants something, you know, a badass piece of art that's also functional in their kitchen? Like, yeah. who are you thinking about? Yeah, I'm thinking about myself, to be honest. I really? mean, you know, I I do think about people. And I, I have certain archetypes sometimes that I'll think about uh, a really crazy one. Um, I was building a knife and I, just for fun. And I was like, I want to build a knife that's like a video game knife. <laughs> And I happened to be watching that show Silicon Valley yeah. at the time. And I was like, what would Guilfoyle want? <laughs> and fucking Guilfoyle calls me up and was like, hey, man, I want that knife. Really? And he wanted the knife that I designed for him, but he didn't even know that. No, that's not. There's no way. Wait, yeah. say that again. Okay. So you're watching Silicon Valley. Yeah. You get inspired yeah. by one of the characters in the show. Yeah. Well, it didn't start out as being inspired. First, it was just like, I want to build a knife for a, a nerd with like too much money. Yeah. And then I was watching the show and I was like, yeah, basically, what would this guy want? And then so you finished the knife? I finished the knife. And then... He bought it. He, he yeah, he s- sends me a message. He's like, how can I get that? <laughs> and I was like, whoa. That is trippy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then uh, the last concert I went to was Sturgill Simpson. Yeah. At the at, at the, uh, at the Coliseum. Coliseum. Yeah. That was my last and, one too. Uh, yeah. Awesome show. And I was like, man, what would Sturgill want? Month later, he hits me up. He's like, <laughs> bro, I want this. <laughs> and so he's on my books for a whole set of knives. <laughs> Not done with so, him yet? No. Oh, and he hits you up right after the last show. Yep. Oh, it's nuts. Man. Yeah. And you know what? I was at that last show and I was like, well, man, I definitely paid too much for tickets, but it was worth it. You know, you're getting your money back. And now, then now I'm getting my money back. <laughs> it was a good show. I thought, Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. I was, I was at the one in, uh, in, uh, Asheville right before that at the, at the civic center mm-hmm. and then went to the one in Knoxville too. Right and on. everybody kind of cleared out after the Tyler Childers. Yeah. But I was like, cool with that. I was too. <laughs> I had some bad tickets in the pit. And, Me too. Uh, I was, was ready awesome. for some sound and fury. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it was good. When are you going to be done with Sturgill's knives? Soon, I hope. <laughs> yeah, because that was a year ago. Yeah. Right. Is that how far back you are? I'm like two years behind. And you got people working with you too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've got two make... assistants. So okay. they're both awesome. They're both learning things, you know. So it's been been really great that it's not just all on my shoulders anymore. Yeah. Is that how it started? Was just you? And yeah. How long was it like that before you had got some help and was like, oh, uh, uncle? About five years. <laughs> really? Yeah. Right. Had you started to hit the stride or was it after the Sean Brock stuff that you were like, I need some help? Um, no, I mean, I just started hitting my stride, to be honest. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really started hitting my stride probably about a year ago. Okay. And like finally figuring out like, all right, I had all my machines finally like dialed in. You know, it it took a long time to, to accumulate the tools because you, know, you to can't build just, the machines to yeah, make cause the you, knives. Exactly. Because you can't just go to Lowe's and like, buy a massive hydraulic press or a power hammer or or even a forge, you know, so it's taken me, you know, many iterations and like just a lot of, a lot of tweaking things to figure out how to get to that next step and how to create, you know, how to get to that next level. How do I make what I, what I can see? So, so is there some, like something out there where that, that is, I don't know, man. It feels like you're, you've got it. It feels like you've reached the pinnacle of your craft, but is there like, is there something just beyond there that you're kind of reaching for or or like looking towards as kind of a way to, you know, take it to the next level? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm just getting started really. Really? Yeah. Like I've, I've been just started reading this uh, Robert Green book on mastery Mm. and uh, he's an awesome author. He wrote this book called the 48 laws of power. That's like the number one book in prison. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, it's, it's awesome. But in this book on mastery, basically, you know, he breaks it down to where, you know, just once you can get reach that flow state, you know, then you're like getting to the point where you're, you've started to master things. And then that's when like the actual work kind of begins. Gotcha. And so now what I'm trying to figure out is like, how do I teach this stuff? So you know, to like to be able to figure it out on my own is one thing, but then how to explain it to somebody else in a way that they can do it efficiently and safely. That's, you know, that's what I'm trying to figure out now. Flow state. What's yeah, that? Where you can just work without, you know, where, where you're moving and you're not even thinking about your actions. Gotcha. You're not thinking about why you're doing it. You're not thinking about how you're doing it. It's just, it's just coming to you. It's like tying your shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Riding a bicycle, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like I'm just now kind of getting to that point where I can hit that flow state and, you know, I can be working on five things at once and like just bouncing around and everything's just moving seamlessly. 
So the the teaching part of it is that what you're imparting onto your two assistants now? Yeah, trying to get them up to your level. Yeah, or at least uh, you know they have years before they'll get there. You know, get there. But by me teaching it, I understand it better. Mm. So you know, it's it's um, I don't know. To be able to do it's one thing, but then to be able to explain how to do it is like a totally different game. I get it. Yeah. And and I want to be able to teach these things. I mean, I get emails every single week of people wanting to come work for me. Yeah. And I'm like, sorry, dude. I'm like in my backyard garage here. Like, I don't really have room for another person, nor do I have the time to mm-hmm. take out. But I think that the skills, going back to like what I learned from Preston, you know, that... uh you know, mistakes can be made and you can fix these things. I want to be able to pass on kind of the next level of all that to people. So, so how, what is the, what, what does the next level look like for your craft or what is, you know, what is, you know, how do you make this better? I don't know how you would make that better. I to mean, you, what does that mean? To me, it's how do I make it? Um, how do I remove decisions from the process. Your own decisions? Yeah. Well, so the decisions are made before anything even happens. Hmm. So, so you, you know, want to improv a little more? Yeah. I want to be able to improv more and less at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you know, like in the same way that like uh, a musician can like jam on a song for half an hour and they've played the same song a million times, hmm. but they can still play it in new ways that they don't even realize yet. Type two fish. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, they, yeah, they've played it so many times that they can surprise themselves still. And so, but it's like still so planned out, but yet the more they've planned it out, the more it opens up. I feel you. And so that's kind of where I'm trying to get to. And I'm getting closer, but also like, do you ever get there? (laughs) You know, you don't know when you do get there, really. So... I think I know the answer to this maybe, but is it ever, do you, do you ever start working some working on something? And it's like, ah, nah, fuck this up. I'm throwing it away. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. All the time. I'm not precious about really anything. I mean, you know, I try to figure out how to save it. You know, if I've got 40 or 60 hours into something, like I'll do everything I can to maybe make it a smaller knife or, yeah. you know, or incorporate it into another piece. Is that how you save it? Make it a smaller knife? Usually. I mean, there's yeah. a saying where uh, knife makers don't make mistakes. They just make smaller knives. And uh, there's definitely some truth to that. Yeah. How long did this uh, sword take? That's probably got 200, 300 hours. Gotcha. So a couple months. Yeah. Of yeah. nine to five every day. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, just making this piece has about 100 hours into it. And that's the Japanese style? Yeah. The And that's called the bolster? That's the habaki. The habaki. Oh, yeah. 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 Which in traditional Japanese sword making... Every piece of this would be made by a different artist. Really? Yeah. Did Sturgill buy some of your Japanese stuff? Is that where he, he got in, not yet. enthralled? Not yet. But uh, he seems prime for the taking. Oh, he is. <laughs> we we email back and forth, and he, he told me he's got more Japanese swords than a grown man should have. <laughs> more katanas, specifically. Well, what else? Like this this big cleaver here or what, this is what it yeah. looks like to me. So how much time is, is into that? Um, you know, 
This one's probably got 60, 80 hours. That's amazing, man. Altogether, I know. mean, you've got, you know, six, eight, a year's month, a year's worth of work mm-hmm. laying here in front of me. And it's just, yeah, it's amazing to see such a, and, and it looks like a year's worth of work too. You know, it's, it's a craft that, um, that, that, sh- that, that it feels like it shows the effort that you put into it with yeah. your craftsmanship married yeah. to it. It looks, I hope so. I mean, that's, that's always the goal for someone to look at it and be like, you know, holy shit, how did this, how did somebody make this? <laughs> what about this uh, sheath here? You made that too? Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, the sheath or uh, is that the Saya, that's oh, what okay. it's also called, gotcha. stand and the handle are all made from the same piece of wood. Oh. So it's all Brazilian rosewood. Okay. And I made it so that the grain matches up on it. No way. So when you look at it and see the, the grain Dude. just all flows. <laughs> so stupidly awesome it's yeah. amazing so i want to figure out next how to turn this into an nft I, I was i was gonna ask how are you gonna turn your knives into into an nft that's that's the goal right now that's what i'm trying to figure out really so i'm talking to some animators about animating the images that i've taken yeah so i took some really cool pictures of this with like dry or liquid nitrogen like smoke all around it and uh, i want to animate the pattern so it's moving all trippy. Yeah. And then you know, the smoke is moving around it. Yeah. And then, you know, tie that into the Ethereum chain so that then, you know, the lineage of the piece is traced. Yeah. You know, in the in the docket, you know, and then uh every time it gets sold again with a smart contract, I'll get a piece of commission back from that. Yeah, you can you can put a royalty on it. Yeah. On NFTs. Yeah. Yeah, I I was that was honestly one of my early, earliest questions uh, when we started talking was, you know, how do you turn this into crypto? Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> Because that's a place you got to think right now. Yeah, exactly. In 2021. Yeah, I mean, I made some big mistakes with crypto already. Really? By, you know, I could have, I could be much better off now that I am. Yeah, you, you sold your Bitcoin I, a little too soon. Yeah, or didn't, it t- didn't take it when I could have, yeah. you know. There was some knives I... I passed, you know, the guy offered me crypto on some years ago and I yeah. passed on. Yeah. I've got a buddy who, uh, and I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but he, he was visiting Knoxville and, and it was, and he was, he's, he's, he's from all over, but he was visiting from, uh, the, the middle East at the time is where he was working. And he came to, uh, I did a first Friday art show, uh, in the underground in Knoxville. I, I did a bunch of my prints uh, that I'd taken. I printed them on wood. And, uh, and, and just did a show and he came down and he, and he was like, man, I think I figured out how to buy Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, sweet, do it. And he was like, I, I'm going to do it. And he, and he, uh, he bought a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin while we were setting up for my first Friday show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> I just, I had to, I reached out to him about a month ago and I was like, you still got that Bitcoin. <laughs> and he was like, um, not all of it. He was like, I sold about half of it uh, in 2018 for $75,000 and I've yeah. got the rest of it riding yeah. right now. That's all right. It's not bad. Yeah. One of my buddies used to have a food truck and he sold sandwiches and took Bitcoin for sandwiches. And he was like, oh, yeah, I just get two to three coins per sandwich. You really? Know? Yeah. Now he owns the New York Knicks. No, he doesn't have anything now. <laughs> really? I mean, he, you know, he sold it when, when things it, started jumping. So, yeah. Yeah, every time I, I see my financial advisor now, he uh, he always brings up the Bitcoin thing. And he's like, you were the first person to ever talk to me about Bitcoin. 
And uh, I'm I'm glad you did because it, it was worth looking at, and I definitely own some now. Yeah, uh, that's a uh, that's interesting. Uh, when you want to do the uh, animation and all that on that, I want to show you some stuff that that we've done. Not to oh, yeah. not to do it for you, but just to yeah. show you kind of some ideas of yeah, some for sure. some stuff that we've we've done in the past that could you know make that maybe give you some ideas. Yeah, for sure. I'm always always looking. I mean. You know, I definitely have some ideas about how all this stuff gets made, you know, in my pattern development. Uh, you know, I I like to open my third eye and uh, visualize these things. So I want to try to figure out how to make that more real. Yeah. And put it into a digital space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard also as a maker who makes something and it's like a one of a kind thing. And, you know, it can exist on Instagram or whatever, but, you know, I want to be able to, for it to serve me more than, than just as that object on its own. Yeah, it makes good sense because it's a tangible thing that's going to go into someone's home and be appreciated, you know. Yeah, but it's a very private object, you know. Yeah. So it's going to go in someone's home and, like, I make the stuff, I send it off, I never see it again. If I'm lucky, I might, like, get it back for resharpening or something. Yeah. But... You people know, do that too. People it. send them back and say, "Hey, every once in a while, but not very often." Yeah, I offer it to everybody. Really? But not just a little service. That's yeah. next level. Yeah, you know, way to keep taking care of people yeah. because they don't buy this to to you know use it for two years and go buy another knife afterwards. Exactly. I promise you that. Yeah, no, I mean, people buy these, telling me they're planning on passing it down their kids. Yeah. You know, is it rude to ask what your knives sell for? Um, no, I mean, you know. Typically one to two thousand dollars is kind of like the the average. Okay. Um, but then also, you know, pieces go for six, seven, eight thousand dollars. Okay. And it are these things that people use, you think? Or are they Yeah. Really? Yeah. A lot of them do. I mean, you know, there's definitely pieces that people buy from me and they're like, Oh yeah, this is gonna look great on my mantle and my yeah. house in Florida. Does does that bother you? Or yeah. really? Yeah. So you would rather it be functional and yeah. and a piece of art. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that they sit on a shelf, but I would rather it be something that, you know, gets used. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that's the cool thing about the chef's knives, especially that, you know, they're made to be this tool that you interact with on a, on a regular basis. And, you know, it's a tool for creativity. So, you know, I hope that I make these pieces and then they inspire people to, you know, spread their love in their own ways through, you know, creating food, which is like fellowship and health and, you know, all these really important things. So, you know, it's, it's a tool for other artists in my, my vision. Is there anywhere anybody can get one right now? Right now, uh, Blackberry Farms is the only place where you can like go buy one, go buy, buy one right now. Okay. And, what do they have? Uh, they have a set that I, I designed for them. That's a set of four knives and you can buy them all individually. And there's like a paring knife, uh, a little mini cleaver, uh, santoku, which is Japanese for three waves. So it's a knife that can be used for anything. Okay. And then a big chef's knife. And you can you can buy the whole thing or you can buy them one by yep. you can a la carte yep. the yep. thing. Yeah. And it's a special pattern that I developed for them. So they really? all have yeah, so it, it all has like their signature pattern yeah. that I developed and then uh, walnut handles. So awesome. it's, a, it's a very classy, like yeah. very Blackberry Farm. I was going to say, is it in their in their brand in yeah. their in their, in their yeah. vein? 
they're they're one of those uh, one of those places. Everybody knows about them, but you know we don't realize. Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of times with that place, we don't realize what we've got a little bit. Yeah, you know, and I think it gets a a bit of you know this this uh, reputation from the locals as being untouchable or too mm-hmm. five star mm-hmm. um, to go to, which I get. You know, not yeah. everybody you know not everybody can go there and 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 spend time there, but I think that they're important. Yeah. Um. Because because of what they're doing, the same thing that they're doing with you. Yeah. You know, they're they're really you know they're highlighting you know artisans with with things like that. Uh, their services, their experiences that they do there as well are, you know, top notch. Uh, if you go and stay there, you can go on a fly fishing trip. You can go on all these different, mm-hmm. you know, kind of top classic experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're making great beer, yeah, too. Yeah. You know, and th- their their beer is is uh, not doing their name uh, uh, poorly. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're, they've got great beer, great food. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Corkendall, they're they've got a master gardener that yeah. has this amazing seed bank. And, you know, he's growing all these heirloom fruits and vegetables that are, you know, very important part of the history of our local history, you know. Right. Because that stuff goes away without a guy like that. Exactly. Right? Yep. And they're also, you know, using a lot of what they grow there yep. on the menu every single night. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, also they're doing their own charcuterie stuff, their own cheeses. So, yeah, they're doing a lot to preserve the history and craft of everybody in the region. Yeah. So it's really cool that they're able to support that. I'm glad that they do mm-hmm. because I think it would be easy for people to, you know, yeah. not like them if, yeah. if they didn't lean into being East Tennessee. Yeah. Because totally. they're one of a kind around here. Yeah. You know, but if they didn't lean into working with artisans like you mm-hmm. um, and with, you know, using what the land has to offer them, I think yeah. there'd be, they'd be easy to hate. Yeah, for sure. I don't think people should. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful, but I, you know, I've never stayed there. I've never eaten there. But yeah. you know, I've had the full tour. Yeah. yeah. What else? We got we got a couple more knives we haven't talked about yet. We've yeah. talked about the serrated one. What's yeah. the second one with kind of the dull this cork one? looking handle? So this one is called a K tip. That's a kirasuke. And a this, more Japanese stuff. Yeah, this is another Japanese style. So basically it's kinda of like the race car of, yeah, of it looks Japanese fast. knives. It um, looks like it'll cut you both ways. Yeah, exactly. So it has more of a flat edge on it. And this one has a really dense uh, pattern. This is all carbon steel in this one. Okay, so one like mono monolithic knife there. This one has three different types of steel. Oh, it does. But you can see it has a really dense pattern in it. Ah, yeah. So that's uh, it has more layers built up. Okay, so that's what the denser pattern means. Yeah. So you know, basically, I'll start off with uh, I'll start off with a piece like this. Yeah, billet. A billet, yeah. and then. You can see all the layers. Yeah, that's probably got a there. dozen layers in it. Yeah, something like that. Okay, and that's all just flat steel that you yep, have it's just flat steel forged, that just forged together? Yep, okay. so I get that up to uh, about 2,000 degrees. How long does that take to get to that? Um, probably 30 hours. Wow. And then I keep on reducing that. And, and, and just to let those. people know, that's about the size of a box of Cracker Jacks. Yeah, yeah. And how much is the weigh? A couple yeah, it's pounds? probably five pounds. Five pounds? Yeah. Okay. Takes you 30 hours to forge it together. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot of cleaning involved and a lot of grinding and yeah. a lot of other stuff to get there. It's not just all hammering. Hammering the whole time. Yeah. And then I'll cut that in half or in three, and then I'll weld them together and then repeat the process. So every time I do that, I'll increase the amount of layers. Okay. So say that again. You cut it in half lengthwise. I cut it in half. Yeah. Lengthwise. I'll take this. Okay. Cut that in two. Oh, okay. Then double those up. 
and then hammer and then, again. And oh, so you get all that down. Yeah, so we keep on oh, reducing shit. it down. And you keep on reducing it and keep on reducing it until you build up the layer count that you want. So those are all your layers right there. Yep. How many layers are in there? Two dozen? Yeah, there's probably two dozen. So that's okay. basically that times two. So so that's that you, when you say dense, that's you know two dozen layers. That's why mm-hmm. you get the tighter pattern like yeah. on that Japanese Yeah, blade. so this one has probably 200 layers. Really? So, you know, I've done this, repeated this process like 10 times Wow! in order to get, you know, how to many, get to that. How many knives can you make out of that? This block is probably one knife. Okay. And this is probably like three knives. Okay. So I lose about 50% of the mass every time I right. repeat the process. Because it's condensing, right? Well, because it's condensing, but also because of heating it up and oxidizing. Hmm. So as it heats up, you lose a large percentage of the metal just to oxygen. It basically gotcha. turns to uh, forge scale. Because it gets too hot. It gets hot, yep. And it just forms like a, a scab around the entire piece of metal. Mm-hmm. Like like this piece here where it has all this stuff. Yeah, that that goes but, away. That's the cleaning yep. part you're talking yep. about. Okay. Yeah, so all that's got to be ground Is out. that impurity? Uh, no, that's carbon mostly. Okay. So mostly that's just... Uh, the metal reacting with oxygen hmm. and then forming these oxides and it's a, like a carbon oxide. Yeah. So that billet right there has two pieces of rebar coming out of it. Is that just like a handle that yeah. you put in there? Yeah. So I got to okay. be able to grab onto it somehow. Yeah. And, and beat it and beat it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'll just use kind of a sacrificial steel yeah. to help me manipulate it. Gotcha. So I can have something with the tongs to grab onto. Yeah. Cause you know, I'm using basically just big pliers to hold on to the stuff. I've noticed a lot of glass blowers also do do mm-hmm. metal work, right? Yeah. Why is that? It's just the same ingredients, you know. Okay. You've got heat, glass, or, yeah. or sand. <laughs> yeah. But and you know both the also you have to learn how to make your own tools as an artist a lot of times. You know, the deeper you get into your craft, the more you realize that you can't just go to the store and buy the thing you need. Well, yeah, you said that like your three most important tools in the shop, the hydraulic press, the uh, not the mechanical hammer, the power hammer. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was? Uh, the forge or the grinder. Yeah, you made them all. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't buy them at Harper Freight. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, even my forge has gotten crazy. Like I've got an AI controller for it now. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a. it's got, you know, I've built the entire thing from scratch, but now I added a computer to it. So I can set a target temperature. So certain metals can't go over a certain temperature. Or certain metals need to stay within a certain range. So you put a thermostat in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A thermostat with a relay, basically, that is able to tell the temperature that it's getting to and then cut off the fuel source when it gets that target temperature. And it it's self-learning. So mm. it comes up to say, say I've got set to 2,000 degrees. It learns how fast, every time I turn it on, how fast it gets up to that 2,000 degrees and how long it can turn off and then turn back on in order to maintain that temperature. So your machinery is also, or your tools are also getting better. Yeah. Yeah. As you go, because you've AI'd them. Yeah. Yeah. Is and that helping your, is that helping your efficiency? Oh yeah. It's huge. I mean, you know, it just, it reduces the amount of space that I have to mess up. Right. You know, it, the more, the smarter the tools are, the more, the dumber I can be. 
you know, the more I can focus on what's really important. Right. That's the art. Yeah. I was going to say your attention can, you know, which is probably maybe the most important commodity of this whole thing yeah. can be allocated yeah, exactly. in other places, the smarter your tools are. Exactly. Because I mean, every single tool in my shop can kill you like yeah. easy. Oh dude. So, I, I'm <laughs> like, how do you have hands? Yeah. I mean, my hands are in great shape right now. I don't They're fantastic. <laughs> like I see fingerprints on there. Yeah. That's yeah. rare. How do, what, but, how do you, I've just, you must be either really good or, or not very good. I don't know. What I've gotten is. a lot better. I mean, you know, like a year or two ago, my hands would have been all sliced up and really blistered and bloody. Uh, but I've just gotten, you know, just more aware of my actions, more careful. Uh, the better I get, you know, the, the more I just know how to dance around yeah. things. Well, it, it almost reminds me of like, uh, Alex Honnold or like a free solo climber, something like yeah. that. Somebody who just like, you can't fuck up yeah. like that. There's, there's no, that, room. that's not an option. Yeah, you, exactly. You just die if yeah. you mess up. Yeah. And that's kind of, you're, you're in that high stakes world a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And you know, that's what's kept me in it also. Yeah. You know, like having to focus like that is really what has kept me from giving up. Like, every day going in there and like, it's like a life or death situation, you know? Yeah. And when you have that pressure behind you, it really makes you focus and appreciate that focus. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm able to carry that through everything in my life. Yeah. So it's, it's really like made me a better person in so many ways. Yeah. I, I almost miss that about the film world of, of working with mm-hmm. film and working with yeah. this thing that you can't see. You don't yeah. get the, you don't get an LCD viewfinder right yeah. here. And I know that your life is not at stake when you're doing it, but you might have a hundred thousand dollars shoot day going on yeah. and it's all about whether or not you do your job right. Yeah. And you know, it's not, it's apples to oranges to say that, that that's the same kind of attention. But I, I like that idea of like the stakes are super high Mm-hmm. You have to know your craft so much that mm-hmm. if you fuck it up, there are huge consequences. Yeah. And there's something about it that just that, – that you are you know that you're not doing meaningless work at that point. Yeah. You know that what you're doing is important. Yeah, right. And, you know, going back to photography, I, the one of the first things I studied at UT was photography under Baldwin Lee. Mm. And I don't know if you know about him, but he, he studied with um, uh, Minor White at MIT – and then, um, who was the guy that, that toured around the South and took photos? Um, shoot, I'm drawing a blank. I know Ansel Adams. That was, that was in the West though. Yeah. No, it wasn't Ansel Adams. <laughs> oh man. Totally drawing a blank. But anyway, uh, Baldwin was amazing photographer, amazing teacher. And he was all about teaching that decisive moment, you know, from Henry Cartier Bresson, who was like one of the old school greats in photography. And, you know, being able to really like know your craft so well that you're able to pick that exact moment when shit needs to happen Mm. and the importance of always being ready for that decisive moment. And so, you know, just because I do this, make knives, you know, it's really not about the knives. It's about everything else for me. The tactile part of it, the, the executing the artistry, all that. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing when to yeah. pull the trigger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And knowing when when and how and what you're looking for and knowing why you're doing it. Right. That's that's a big that's a really big one. Mm-hmm. Um for me when I look and and I'm bouncing this all off the film craft. Yeah. Thinking of it at all in those terms. Um knowing the why. Yeah. Uh, is the most important part. 
Yeah. I I feel like if you, um, at least with that craft, understanding its most carnal base, 24 frames per second, you know, uh, the, the, you know, how exposure works. Mm -hmm. That's really all you got to know. Yeah. And then it's how you execute it. Mm -hmm. Um, from there, but you know, you can, you can step way deeper into the process and learn and learn how to, you know, expose something on a video camera or whatever, but you're not understanding yeah. these, these just base carnal, um, th- these, these needs and these axioms that, that have to be true, um, you know, in, in order for, for a craft to work. And again, apples to oranges a little bit, but it does resonate with me. Um, to hear you talk about just even knowing your metals, knowing just the deepest, deepest part of that stuff. Yeah. And then you can, that's when you can start to have fun. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you have to know exactly what color the metal's got to be at when you work it. Yeah. And then what like time, what color, when it stops. Or straw. Is yeah. straw a color that yeah. you get? Yeah. Straw is kind of a color. <laughs> straw is a color when you're doing uh, tempering. Uh, okay. So you have the uh, forging temperatures, which mm-hmm. occur between like, say one to 2000 degrees. Yeah. And then you have your temper colors, which happen between like 300 and 900 degrees. What are you doing in the tempering phase? Tempering is where you actually soften the metal. So first, is this when it's on its way down from being, uh, so basically you bring it up to that bright orange color and you quench it. And -hmm. when you quench it, you put a lot of stress on the metal. And that hardens it. You harden it. Yeah. And you're freezing all the molecules into this like very unnatural position for them. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. Yeah. And it's basically like glass. Like mm. you can take a blade and hit it on a table or drop it and which I've done shatter. and it'll shatter. Mm. And so then you got to temper it. So that's where you kind of relieve the stress from gotcha. the Gotcha. And so you relieve the stress between at temperatures between like 300 and 900 degrees. You let it wiggle into where it wants to be, get exactly. comfortable. Yeah. Okay. And even that's a very precise process yeah. of kind of heating it up. So I mostly temper my stuff between like three and 400 degrees. Okay. Uh, but if I was making like an ax, something like that, I want to temper that at like six or 800 degrees mm. because I know that it's going to receive more impact. Yeah. You know, but by doing that you don't want to make it too soft exactly so you're (laughs) softening it and as you soften it then you're kind of like reducing the edge holding abilities feel you so there's this like fine line where you got to figure out how hard does it need to be in order to accomplish the tasks that it's going to accomplish but you know how soft do we need to make it in order make so it can be durable yeah so with as like as involved as this stuff is, uh, and you know, as each one of these knives takes a week, two weeks to make, is there any way to turn this into a production model without losing the magic of it? Yeah, yeah, I think there definitely is. I think for me, it's going to be just a matter of larger machinery. Hmm. You know, basically just scaling the size of everything up. You know, right now I have a 42 ton press, you know, but what if I had a 150 ton press? Does that mean you can smash that faster? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what if I had a crane to be able to move it so I don't have to pick up this whole thing, you know, because this might be 40, 60 pounds when I'm working with it. Yeah. But what if I had a way to hold it up while I'm I'm working with it? I feel you. 
um, you know, bigger power hammer right now. I have a 25 yeah. pound hammer, but what if I had a 250 pound hammer? Yeah. Well, there's really, I mean, I guess you could call it economies of scale, but really yeah. it's just kind of, it, it's just kind of one-to-one. Like yeah. If, yeah. If steel doesn't have any economy of scale. Yeah. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. But, uh, I think through just increasing the scale yeah. and then teaching people how to execute these processes mm-hmm. in the way, you know, by having things like a forge that's not going to over overheat the, the steel so you know it always is up to that target temperature yeah um you know kind of removing a lot of that guesswork and increasing the the scale of it yeah uh anything else that um is outside of the knife world that you're thinking about working on or uh, getting into because yeah. i mean it seems like you've got I don't want to say you've got this one whipped, but you've, I mean, it looks pretty damn good to me. Yeah. So the past couple of years I've been developing a cookware line. Really? So it's basically, yeah, I've been re- reimagining how, you know, the whole cooking process mm. and I use all cast iron, like mm. old cast mm. iron, everything from like old it. lodge to old stuff from my grandparents. And, you know, there's things about it though that I don't love. So I don't love how heavy it is. But I do love how heavy it is. Yeah. You know, um, I love the natural nonstick, you know, cooking surfaces. Sure. So I'm trying to figure out, I've developed new ways to kind of take all the things that I love about my cast iron, but then also applying a lot of the metallurgy and things that I've learned about the knife making. And I'm developing a new type of carbon steel cookware that basically will have um, all the things I love about both. Cast iron, but also in a carbon steel. So I, I'll be launching a new brand probably in the next year. Really? Yeah. And uh, dude, that's, I mean, that sounds like the best of both worlds. It sounds too good to be true almost. But I yeah. almost wonder, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, Lodge has been around for how long? 150 years, mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, yep. right? And uh, they hadn't changed a lot. Yeah. You look at their 150 year old yeah. stuff, they pride themselves on that, yeah. right? But think about the innovation that the rest of the world's gone through. Yeah, you know? exactly. In that time, there mm-hmm. has to be a better way. There yeah. has to be. Yeah, yeah. And it I sounds like so. you're in search. Of, you're on a conquest to find. Yeah, it. yeah. Uh, so I'm actually working with UT, and I've got uh, three teams of students that I'm working with in their industrial design, industrial engineering, and business departments. Mm. And they're all helping me, kind of studying my current processes. They're studying my knife making process, and they're studying my new cookware stuff and we're trying to figure out how to make these these things happen how are we going to increase the scale of the production of the knife business and then also how are we going to introduce the cookware and so you know we're having to like figure out how to make all the dyes and how how are all these industrial processes all going to come into play and how many people is it going to take how much is it going to cost you know all the different aspects yeah so hopefully they've been working with me since last august and so at the end of this year, I'll have a full, basically, business plan really? for this. And then, then I got to find a lot of money. I, I don't think it's going to be hard. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope not. But, you know, when you start looking at how, how much things cost to do them on industrial scales, it's pretty astronomical. Do you, is, is it going to be something that has to start on an industrial scale? Or can it be like your knives where you start them in a shop in your backyard? I mean, I guess the idea of this is to, is to, is to be production, right? Yeah. It'll still be production, but it'll still be small production. So, you know, we'll start off like 
doing small batches. Mm. So, you know, we're looking at producing a thousand pans the first run. Okay. I mean, so that's, that's, that's a, lot, a lot, but it's also not a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot for a guy in his garage. It's not yeah. a lot for a factory. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to be looking for a new shop space, which I love working in my backyard, but also like it's getting pretty packed. Yeah. Is is there a, is there any fear that this gets too big or that this is, it stops becoming a craft and starts to become a, you know, the business or too yeah. jobby? Yes and no. I mean, you know, I've, I'm kind of ready for the next step. Yeah. Where, uh, you know, I don't want to have to be putting in 18 hour days, you know, working all by myself. I don't, you know, carrying all the weight is, gets to be a lot after a while. And then also like, I hate saying no to people. I feel you. Like, I'm just always saying, no, you can't come work with me in my shop. No, you can't buy anything from me. Yeah. And I want to start saying yes to things. I want to say, yes, you can come work with me. Yes, you can come visit my shop. Yes, you can buy stuff. This is how you buy it. And so, you know, that's basically what I've got to do in order to get to the next, the next phase, the next level. Just to get the production up. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and that's going to start opening things up to me in a lot of ways where, you know, I'll start to be able to think more big picture stuff. I'll get to work more on like the design aspect, um, which is really a fun thing. Yeah. I was going to say that seems like dreaming of the things. Yeah. That's when it can start to be a lot of fun too, right? Because that's where your cycles go into, into the creative and not into hammering as much. Exactly. Yeah. That feels like it could, it could really explode this even more. Yeah. Again, I don't know how you make this any better, but I mean, I, I, I'm not going to underestimate what's in your brain. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to push it as far as I can really. And, and I would love to be able to step away from it at one point, mm-hmm. you know, and, and let it be its own thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I can go you. back, I can go back to this, you know, yeah. <laughs> just go back to where I started. Exactly. I mean, I, I have no problem with that. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of excites me actually to be able to take it full circle and to have this thing that lives on beyond me. And just like the pieces do, you know, like these things are out going to, they're going to outlive all of us. Yeah. So why not like build the machine that's also going to outlive us and, you know, give my, my son a legacy and like, you know, give our town something. So I think there's a lot of potential in it all. (laughs) I'd say you're right. I'm, yeah, I'm damn, uh, I I feel honored to sit here just in front of you and and in front of your work, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped about what you're doing and I'm also, um, I'm very glad to to hear your, you know, the reasons that you're doing it are not just to, you know, to make money or to, you know, you know, make this narcissistic art either. I mean, it's yeah. something that is, um, it's storied and you know very well that this stuff is going to last, you know, longer than all of us. And you're working in a, you know, in a craft and in a, in a medium that doesn't mean nothing. Yeah. It's not a throwaway. Yeah. It's not disposable. No, exactly. And, you know, I think that that's so much of what our culture promotes. It's like, yeah, just make it fast, make it cheap, like, yeah, get it done. Yeah. Let's get the China out of this pr- process here yeah. and really, you know, make something that, that, that means something, not just some yeah. disposable throwaway stuff. Exactly. That- and, you know, that's something else that's really important to me too, is that you know, we've lost so much American manufacturing Mm. and like skill, these skills are just like gone. 
And through expanding my business and expanding the scale, you know, I'll be able to like kind of return some of these skills back to, you know, the people here that kind of, uh, you know, made America great the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Before we try it again, you're right though. And this is missing. This is the part that what I'm looking at right here is the part that is missing yeah. from our society yeah, and, and from our culture. But this has a way of, it's not, it's, it's not, um, it's not braggadocious. It's not hoity toity. It's not, um, it's, it, it, it's not self, uh, it's real. It's real stuff that looks, um, that, that looks like craftsmanship and it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't look like it's here just for now. And it, it, you can tell by looking at it that it is, um, something that someone spent a lot of hard work on and that they meant for it to be here. Not that they, not that they meant for it to be, you know, a commodity that's, that's bandied about, uh, but, but something that is really intentional and not self-serving. And I, and I think that that is one of the most absent parts of craftsmanship now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and not to say that people don't get into it for the right reasons, but it's really easy to sell one of these knives for a thousand dollars, I'm sure. And say, okay, how can I make that thing cheaper? Yeah. Or how can I make it faster Yeah, and get one out the door a lot quicker? But none of this screams that, you know, to me. Yeah. And I, and, and I commend you so much, um, for I'm sure resisting the urge you know, at, at some point to just mm-hmm. start, you know, I don't want to say printing money, but to, you know, bastardize your craft mm-hmm. and just to, you know, to make a buck or, or, or move forward. And I, and, and I'm so, it, it is so relieving to me, um, to see this level of artistry sitting on the table Thanks, man. in front of me. And I'm I, legit honored Thanks. to be around your knives Appreciate and around it. you. Thanks. Um, are we going to do this again sometime? Yeah, I would love to. I, I've got lots more to talk about. Really? Uh, like I said, the the whole the next level that's coming uh, is going to be some real cool stuff. The cookware stuff. Yeah. Do you want to get together in six eight months a yeah. year and yeah, do this again? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll have to have you over at my shop and check out I'd everything. Geek out, It'll man. make everything will make a lot more sense. You know, once really once you see like, oh yeah, that you did make that yourself. <laughs> Yeah. That is AI over yeah. there. Yeah. But I mean, my stuff is, it's scrappy, you know, it's, it's definitely like I've put together things, uh, in some very creative ways. I bet it all holds up. I bet it's, I mean, if it makes the, if it helps you make this stuff, it has to be done right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I'm always making improvements to everything because you know, there's, you know, again, you can't just go to the store and buy the machines that I need. So they break down more often than I would like to admit. They get a Band-Aid here and there. Yeah, lots of Band-Aids <laughs> and lots of lots of work constantly trying to figure out, all right, well, it's doing that thing again. How do we stop that? <laughs> let's do let's uh let's catch up soon. Yeah, man. Let's I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm excited to see where cool, all man. this continues to yeah, go. Yeah, like I said, it's just getting started. Love it. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
right. How'd we do? Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate it a lot. Check out our Patreon if you want to get a little merch, get a little extra stuff out there, keep us going, keep the support flowing. Check us out on Instagram, at South of Scruffy. That's how you find out what's going on with us. Uh, Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Anywhere you're potting, we're we're available on that subscribe button. Thank you guys so much. Again, appreciate you being here. Take care. Be good. Pitch wire. Play me out. <laughs>